Good morning. Good to see you guys here on Daylight Savings Time. Sorry to make you suffer through the loss of an hour of sleep. Glad to have you guys join us. Uh, for those watching online, it's great for you to be part of this this morning. And for those at West Falls Church, it's great to have them joining us. Uh, my name is Brian. This morning, we want to continue in our Trust Issues series with the name of God, Adonai Shama, which means the Lord is there. Uh, we've been talking about the character of God over the past seven weeks and why we can trust him. And so we're continuing that journey this morning, talking about God being present with us. I believe being present is a challenge. Uh, my wife and I are challenged at being present in slightly two different ways. My wife is amazing at being singularly focused on one thing at a time. If it's me, it's amazing. If it's our son, it's great because we've got our full attention. But every now and then, she can get singularly focused on work or a book or her phone or Facebook or just the problems going through her head. And what this results in is I could be talking for 10 minutes thinking I'm having a conversation. And Joanne, 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 like something clicks that we're not really like engaged. And usually about the fourth or fifth Joanne, she's like, oh, wait, were you saying something? Hopefully that does not happen to you this morning. Or maybe you're like me. You're so multi-focused, I can be having a conversation with my wife and at the same time pick up three or four other conversations in the room, be thinking about work, be watching our two-and-a-half-year-old, maybe looking at the TV also, you know, and kind of present in everything. And what this means for me is I'm not really present anywhere. I get about 30% at best of what's going on in front of me. And... More often than not, I have to go back to Joanne and be like, so what did we decide on? What did we talk about? What was the, like, it's very infuriating to her, so she puts up with a lot. But being present is a challenge. Being present is a challenge. Adonai Shama, these two words, the Lord is there, are the last two words of the book of Ezekiel. The very last words. Ezekiel is in exile and they've, or Israel is in exile, and Ezekiel is there telling Israel that there's hope for the future. Israel is in, the, in Babylon suffering, struggling, and Ezekiel comes along and paints this picture of restoration, of hope, of reordering reality for them. And so he tells them about the presence of God coming down. The last two words of his book are Adonai Shama, the Lord is there. It's a powerful statement. I believe, however, that who we want present in our life is contingent upon their character. Who we want present in our life is contingent upon their character. I grew up with an alcoholic father. He was emotionally abusive, very controlling, very fear-inspiring, very strong-willed. I remembered at the age of eight making this comment to my mother, not understanding the consequences of this comment. It would be better if we left him. No clue what that would entail. But I knew something about his character, and I didn't want him present. My cousin and I had this conversation at age 10 or 11. My cousin is five months older than me to the day. His name is Ryan. I'm Brian. We were very close together. And what we did, we had a conversation of who had it better. Who had it better? And he looked at me, and he's like, man, you've got it so much better than I do. His parents had split when he was about four or five years old. And he looked at me, he's like, at least your dad's in the house. At least he's present. You've got it so much better than I do. And I looked at him and I said, man, you've got it so much better than I do. 
I wish my dad were gone. It'd be better if he were gone. Depending on who we saw our fathers to be determined whether we wanted them present or not. And I believe, at least I do, I transfer this same philosophy to God. Who we view him to be in that moment or how we understand him to interact with us determines whether we want him present. Maybe he feels absent. We're like, God, I just need you present. Or we look at him and say, no, that's not a God I want. I wish he were gone. It would be better off if he were out of the picture. We transfer this to God. Being present is contingent upon their character, who we understand them to be. My mother was very helpful in my faith growing up because she looked at our situation, uh, an alcoholic family, and from very early age said, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way a family is supposed to operate. This is not the way a father is supposed to operate. She looked at me and said, she came to follow Jesus, became a Christian after they got married. And she looked at me and said, God did not do this to us. This was a result of alcoholism and decisions that were made. And instead of blaming God, we need to look to God for hope, for reality, for fixing, for restoration, for, for healing. So very early on, I was predisposed to trusting God, conditioned more or less to look to God as my source of hope rather than my source of pain. I don't know what your story is. I know many of us are not conditioned that way. And so when we talk about trusting God, we have to figure out how do we get there? How do we get there? I heard a talk recently that put it very well, stuck with me, made sense to me. We tend to change our deeply held beliefs, our view of God, who we trust, if we trust God, based on two great things. These two great things change our predispositions, change our perspective. They're either great loss or great love. Two things, great loss or great love. We either change these deeply held beliefs or view of God based on great loss or great love. And I believe early on, for me anyway, it came out of great loss, pain, Realizing life is not what it should be. This is not the way God intended. And that great loss spurred in me a desire to find hope outside of myself. Saying, I can't fix this. God, I need you to step in. And realizing later in high school, as I learn more about who this God is, got a picture of his love, which we'll talk a little bit about this morning, and what a father was supposed to be in the love of God. And at that moment, experienced this great love of God that filled in all the cracks, the crevices, the brokenness that resulted from the great loss. And trust for me at that moment was sealed. And so we want to look a little bit about that this morning and talk about those things. God is with us. And we can trust him to be present for three main things. He constantly tells us to turn to him over and over again in Scripture. Tells us to turn to him. Secondly, he enters into our experience. Enters into our experience. And thirdly, he goes through the process with us, this process of life, the ups and downs, the pains, the losses, the loves. He goes through with us. It's an amazing picture that we have, and we want to do that through the story of Israel in the book of Exodus. Israel is a fledgling nation, and they are in Egypt for almost 400 years. 
A new pharaoh has risen up, and all of a sudden, their situation had changed. This pharaoh looks at them and says, they don't look like us, they don't talk like us, they don't act like us, they don't worship like us, and they're getting too many. They've grown too much. We need to subdue them. We need to put them under service. We need to get them to work for us. We're going to subject them to slavery, and they're going to build our kingdom of Egypt for us. And all of a sudden, Israel's situation had changed. And Israel cries out to God. In Exodus 3, God responds and he says, I've heard the cries of my people, the grumblings of my people, and I'm going to set forth and deliver them. It's a powerful image of love because God earlier on in, in choosing Israel has told them plainly, I am choosing you, not because you're more numerous or more powerful or more wealthy, you don't have more merit than any other nation. I'm simply choosing you because I love you and I see your worth. And through you, I'm going to do something amazing. It's this great unmerited favor, this grace that is poured out on Israel that brings them into relationship with God. And so God looks at them and says, I've heard your cry and I'm going to respond to that relationship and I'm going to deliver you. So God raises up Moses, and he does this great, amazing act, and Israel comes out of Egypt. They've left the city of Egypt, but now they find themselves in the wilderness. They find themselves in a hard spot, and they begin to look longingly on the past. Man, things were so much easier in Egypt. Remind you, they were in slavery. So much easier in Egypt. At least we had a full meal. At least we had homes, but now we're out in the wilderness, and things are falling apart for us. We're experiencing great loss and pain because this God that we've followed is no longer trustworthy. And they began to look at God and says, God, we don't want you here. Moses, their leader, goes up onto a mountain, Mount Sinai, and has this amazing encounter with God. Fire and smoke and thunder and this glorious image. But 40 days passes and Israel looks up at Moses up on this mountain. They can't see him. They don't know what's happening. God's up there showing them the way to enter into a nationhood to become an independent people, to become powerful, to be a blessing to the nations. He's revealing himself, who he is, his ways to Moses. But Israel's down in the wilderness and they say, that's great, God's connecting with Moses, but we're left down here with nothing. God may be over there for somebody else, but I got nothing here. And so, looking at their situation, they say, we can't trust this God. Let's make for ourselves a golden calf or a golden bull. This is a God that will go before us, and in Ezekiel or Exodus 32 says, he will go before us. And really what that means is he's going to grant us success. If we want to go north, we're going to push that golden bull north. If we want to go west, we're going to push him west. He's going to follow us, and we get to dictate what this God does for us, what he looks like, and how we interact with him. And so they've willfully pushed God away and said, I don't want you near the Harvard Business Review nails the issue of trust on the head. It says, trust is an issue because people are self-centered. People are self-centered. And what I typically do when I think about trust is I, everybody out there is really self-centered, so I'm not going to get what I want. That's typically what I do. Everybody out there is self-centered, so they're holding me back. I can't trust them because they want what's best for them. But as I think a little bit deeper, a little bit more honest, I have to say to myself, trust is an issue because I'm self-centered and I want from you, everybody else what's best for me and I don't care anything for them. It usually revolves around me. And that's what Israel has done. It says, what is best for me at this moment? 
And they've said, I'm going to create my own way. I'm going to do it my own way because this God is not fulfilling what I'm expecting. Does their decision to walk away from God diminish God's trustworthiness? Does their decision to walk away diminish God's trustworthiness? This stool that's holding me up as a small example has allowed me to rest my legs. You know, it's, I lost an hour of sleep last night, so I need a little bit of rest. It, it's refreshing. Like, you know, after a couple minutes, I can feel rejuvenated, back to normal and everything else. And this is what I typically do in my life. After I'm feeling good or I decide, okay, I want a little change. I easily get up and I step over here. My perspective has changed. My circumstances have changed. I've kind of left the stool. But after some time, my legs get tired again. Maybe. My circumstances change. My perspective changes. And all of a sudden, things aren't what I want. They're not going so well for me. And what Moses does to Israel is they come back. Moses comes back to them and says, guys, you just got to return to the stool. You've walked away. You've made this willful decision to get up, to walk away from God. Your decision to walk away doesn't mean he's walked away. It doesn't mean that that stool is any less trustworthy. Moses comes into the situation and says, guys, your world has changed. Things aren't looking good. But all we have to do is turn back. Just go back to the stool. Just go back to God. And things would be reordered. Things would be set right. Moses felt that God was distrustful because they had left the relationship. They had willfully walked away from it. Moses says, that doesn't change anything about the character of God. The fact that you left doesn't change the fact that God's character means he remains and is waiting for you. All you have to do is turn back to God. Why does Moses turn back to God? Israel leaves God based on feelings. They look at their situation and say, we're in the wilderness. Things are not going well. We need to leave. And Moses comes down to the mountain and says, based on facts, that's a poor decision. Israel leaves God based on feelings, and Moses turns to God based on facts. He looks back over that history and says, God has chosen us willfully to love us, to cherish us, to see our worth and our value despite what we had to bring to the table, and he wants to be in relationship with us. Not only that, did he bring us out of slavery and is leading us to a place where we can be independent, where we can be our own nation, be a blessing to the world. He's a powerful God. Guys, you need to look at this, Israel. Come back to him. The thing that's amazing about this, Israel has just developed this calf. They've built this golden calf, and they said, this is going to be our God. This is the way it's going to be. And Moses comes back and says, just return to him. God receives them back. It's a very bizarre instance in the fact of God comes into the picture and he says, okay, Moses, I've heard your prayer and we're going to read that in just a moment. But Moses says, turn back to God. Israel repents and says, show me your ways. And they turn back to God and God says, okay, let's go forward. He doesn't heap shame upon shame. He doesn't heap guilt upon guilt. He doesn't hate them, but reaches out to them and welcomes them back in. It's an amazing picture. And so we want to look at what Moses' turning to God looks like in Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, and this is a very honest prayer. Uh, if you've ever been in a time of loss or pain, sometimes honest prayers are the best thing that you have to God with this frustration. You have been telling me to lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. 
If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this is your people. And the Lord replied, My presence will go with you and you will find rest. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. It's an amazing transition in Moses' prayer because he's seen Israel walk away. But he's got the wherewithal to turn to God and say, God, based on who you've promised to be, we need you to come along with us. You've been telling me, lead these people. Who will you send with me? God, if your presences don't go with me, I cannot go. Show me your ways. Show me your glory. That's what the stool is all about. Oftentimes I step outside and I want to do it my own way, right? And Moses comes along and says, no, God's ways are better. If we follow God's ways, there's a relationship of trust that is built that turns out better for us. And we can in turn be a blessing for others. Moses turns to God, but can we really trust him? Can we trust this God? John has said it a couple times over the past couple weeks. Trust is based on a mountain of evidence in the past that provides hope for the future. A mountain of evidence in the past that provides hope for the future. This book, we call the Bible, spans about 1,500 years. Over 40 authors have written it and thousands of characters are in it, individuals. Hundreds of stories. This book makes no pretense that life is easy. It includes suffering, includes pain, injustice, wrongs. What's powerful in here is that it also includes man's complaints that God feels absent at times. It's not saying everything's going to feel wonderful. But the people that we celebrate, the stories that we hold on to, the people that we make into heroes and we seek to follow their steps of faith are those that, despite those feelings, turn to God. Because we see over and over again that when they turn to God, hope is restored. Lives are restored. People are vindicated. Justice is done well. And that's what we uphold. That's what we long for in life is looking at our situation saying things are not the way they're supposed to be. Where can we find hope? And over and over again, those that turn to God, despite what they've done, are received and things are set right. And that's the power, the hope that's before us. This process of life includes ups and downs, departures and returns from God that make us who we are, but God withstands all of these things. I was at an Al-Anon meeting recently. This is Alcoholics Anonymous for family members. Um, I said growing up in an alcoholic family, it took a number of years. My father's been deceased for a number of years. Um, It took a long time to get into one of these meetings, but after talking to a lot of people in counseling and family members and everything else, hearing about Al-Anon, I figured I'd give it a shot. Uh, There's an interesting element to this because as a pastor, uh, most people, at least in circles like this, know that I'm fairly religious or spiritual or at least have this title pastor. And so it kind of governs the conversation, right? What I found in D.C., is that about five or six minutes into a conversation with somebody you don't know, the inevitable question that comes up is, oh, what do you do? Usually I try to skirt around this. I'm a religious educator, I'm a community builder, or whatever you want to say. Uh, But it ultimately comes down to, well, I'm a pastor. And two things typically happen. The first, depending on who they are, is they shut down. You see all the wheels turning because they're thinking, what did I just say in the past ten minutes? (laughs) What is he thinking of me? What did I do this past week? 
Is he going to talk about Jesus? Am I going to get uncomfortable? And usually after that process has gone through about six or seven minutes and you just see it on their face, they're like, oh, well, that's great. I've got, I think I've got to pick something up over here. And the conversation's over. Or the other thing that typically happens, I mentioned I'm a pastor. We could be talking about football. We could be talking politics. But as soon as I mention I'm a pastor, all of a sudden they become real spiritual. Oh, brother, that's amazing. God bless you. It's so great to, this is the day the Lord has made. It's so great that he brought you into this. And I'm just like, do you talk like this normally? Is this what happens? Do I sound like that? Do I go around? Is, is that the vibe that you got? So walking into this meeting, anonymous, with 25 people in there, was an amazing blessing to me. Because I got to hear their stories of God and their challenges unfettered. Without a filter, there was no desire to impress or no fear. The format of Al-Anon, this anonymous group, is such that they talk about the 12 steps. Uh, I attended in February, and so we were in the second step. And somebody shares a quick little word, but then everybody around the circle, it's like a free-for-all. One person at a time, they introduce themselves, and they can share whatever they want for however long they want. And at the end... All they say is, thank you for letting me share in in response. Everybody thanks them for sharing. There's no questions. There's no advice. There's nothing. It's just a one-way conversation. But what this allowed was some intense, deep, personal revealings. We've gone around the circle for some time, and this woman two seats down from me begins to share her story. I want to read to you first the two steps from Al-Anon that bring us to this story. The first, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. Great loss. Things were not the way they should be. They were out of control. And the second step that we were discussing that week, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. A power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Out of order and source of hope. Great pain, great loss, but there is a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. And this woman, two seats down from me, begins to tell her journey of being in Al-Anon, this community. She had a child who was suffering with alcohol. Completely ravished their lives. Lost their job, lost relationships, lived homeless for a while struggled to do every day. And she recounted for the longest time the anger and the pain that she cast toward God. God, why could you do this to my child? Why have you given me this plight? Why do you treat us this way? Why are you pouring out your wrath upon us? And she discussed that pain of coming to the point of saying, God, I don't want you in the picture. And the bitterness and the anger had so welt up within her that it drove her between her and her community, drove a wedge between her and her husband, and became toxic to her and her child. Completely tore apart her family. And at that point, she said, man, things are so unmanageable. I've got to go to this group. And she began coming. She recounted over about a year, year and a half, coming to step two and really wrestling with it. Because this higher power she had in mind was not a higher power she cared to admit was there. Something needed to change. Her life had become unmanageable. And she began to get a glimpse of truth. 
looking at her situation, she began to see things were outside of what they should be. It became unmanageable. But in that, she began to realize that alcohol was an evil unto itself, that the decisions of her child had true natural consequences, that the world that we are in is not just, it's not fair, it's not perfect. And alcohol was an outcome of some of that. And she recounted having gone through this process for about a year and a half, struggling with this second step, coming to the point of realizing, again, that that shift. God is the source of hope for this. I have nowhere else to look but somewhere outside of myself because what's happening right now is so unmanageable, it's destroying everything around me. And she recounted a two-year process of coming to grips with who this God is, this power she began to realize that it wasn't God that was afflicting her child. But God had the answer of hope, of restoration. And what she recounted over the next couple of minutes of that meeting was telling about this community and that realization melting away the bitterness, the pain, the suffering. The great love, it started filling in the cracks and the crevices of her great pain and great loss. And what she said was that relationship between her and her husband began to meld back together. She began to love her child well rather than making excuses for them. Instead of enabling them, she began to love them well. To understand the love of God, to extend that to her child, and to hopefully see small steps along the way. It was a powerful story that I couldn't have put any better and truly heartbreaking as you heard her share what's happened to her child. But there was a great change that took place because she got a glimpse of truth. And I believe truth builds trust. Truth builds trust. We need an element of truth in our story, in our realities, because truth brings order to feelings and experiences. Just like Moses comes in with facts when Israel's like, we're in the wilderness here, it's not going so well. Moses' truth, his facts, bring order to our situation. Truth builds trust. Moses gets to this point by telling God, show me your ways, teach me your ways. In Christianity, we have no better way of revealing and understanding this truth than when truth takes on human form. And that's Jesus Christ, the person that we celebrate, the person that we follow. When truth takes on human form, when God reveals himself in human form through Jesus, something powerful changes. Because he enters into our experience and no longer is it God stepping away in our mind, but he steps into our situation. Jürgen Moltmann, he's a 20th century theologian, uh, grew up in Germany during the World War II era and actually served in the German army. He was captured and placed in an English prisoner or war camp. He had access to a New Testament and read the Gospels. And he got to this point of Jesus' cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jürgen Moltmann at that point said, now that's a God I can understand. That is a God who understands me. Understanding builds trust. Understanding builds trust. And that's the power of Jesus is that God steps into our situation, into our experience and understands what we're going through, this great pain, this great loss. And from the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This perception of absence of God. It's the cry of a spiritually desolate man 
who regardless of his situation turns to God, appeals to God in the face of the injustice, the evil, the mockery, the shame that he is experiencing. It's a powerful picture that in the face of all these things, he continues to turn to God. What's more powerful is one of the Gospels puts this as his last words, forgive them, forgive them. Makes no sense. Enduring the shame, the mockery, the pain, yells out, forgive them. For what purpose? All this is happening. It's the same with Moses in the wilderness. Israel has created this God and said, I want nothing to do with you. And Israel comes along and says, God, if you're not here, we don't want, don't make us go from here. We're nothing without your presence. And Jesus comes along and says, forgive them. In essence, he's saying, take them back if they turn to you. I don't care what they're doing, what the criminals on either side of me did, or the pain that they've inflicted upon me. If they turn to you, forgive them. Take them back because they're worth it, because I love them. It's a powerful image of forgiveness. No matter what we've done today, yesterday, or the past week, or the past 10 years, this is the message of Jesus Christ, that if we turn to him, he looks at us and says, we forgive them. Because we love them, because we love you, and we want relationship with you at all costs. It's a powerful image. Now, I have to give this caveat. A lot of you may be thinking, well, I can just keep on doing whatever I want to be doing as long as I want, and as long as I keep going back to Jesus, everything's good. Everything's perfect. And that's a lot of the story we have in these scriptures with Israel is this constant running away from God and constantly turning back, running away and turning back. Paul writes to us, should we go on living our own way, sinning, turning away from God, and coming back so that grace may increase? It's this idea of, well, if God's forgiveness and love is so great, I can do whatever I want, and as long as I come back, his forgiveness is touted. It looks better. So the more I sin, the more bad I look, the more his grace looks good, right? The worse I am, if he still accepts me, the better he looks. It's kind of this weird argument. The reality of Moses' words, show me your ways, defeats that. Because it's not this constant, I'm going to do whatever I want as long as I keep coming back to him. It's when I come back to him, I need to learn little by little his ways so that my life begins to be transformed and that relationship is developed. If we constantly have a relationship that we're walking away from, what does it do to the fabric of that relationship? Tears it apart. And that's what Moses is getting to the heart of. The image we have of God in Scripture through Jesus is that God constantly pursues us at all costs, constantly pursues us. He steps into the mess of humanity and enters into our experience saying, I want to be in relationship with you. Come along with me. When it made the most sense for God to be absent, he went all in instead. When it made the most sense for God to be absent, he went all in instead. There's a verse in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. It's part of a larger hymn. I memorized this early on as a source of hope. Uh, this last line is pertinent to our message this morning. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The first part is fairly self-explanatory. I'm often faithless. It's a great hymn, Lord, I know it, I'm prone to wonder. Bind my heart to you. 
I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to be Israel, say, things aren't going the way that I want. I'm going to try it out on my own for a little while. I'm prone to do that. But the powerful message in here is no matter how faithless I am, that he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does it mean he cannot deny himself? Over the past seven weeks, we've been talking about his character, the character of God, the names of God. He cannot deny himself means he is true to his character, to who he says he is. And the image of God that we get through the person of Jesus Christ is that he is faithful to no end regarding his acceptance of you, his love of you, the worth and the value that he sees in you. The fact that no matter what's been done, he wants to have a relationship with you. That is part of his character. He is faithful. Faithful to what? This book has numerous promises of realities of what God intends to set this messed up creation back in order to restore it, to bring justice, to bring healing. He is faithful to do those things. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. No matter how faithless we are, there is a bigger picture, and God says, I'm going to remain faithful to that bigger picture, and whoever wants to be part of it, whoever wants to turn to me, I am going to accept. I'm going to bring healing. He remains faithful. Even if we disown him, if God feels absent, all of Scripture, all these stories, leads me to believe that no matter what, he is still there. He is still faithful. He hasn't moved. He hasn't changed. When I walk away, he doesn't walk the other direction. This is the story of the prodigal son. The son takes everything that his father gives him. In Luke 15, you can go home and read it. The father gives him everything that he owns, and the son goes out and lives his own life and runs into hard times, loses his money, lives poorly. And he decides, okay, I'm going to endure the shame of my life and go back to my father. Being a servant, a slave in his house is better than where I am right now. And he goes back expecting to be shamed, expecting to receive the severe consequences. And instead, his father, this image of God, runs toward him and says, I've been waiting all along for you to turn to me. He heaps no shame upon him, heaps no guilt upon him, and says, I don't care about what you've done. There's a new way to live. Come back to my house. You get prize position because you're worth it, because I love you. There's two things in Moses' prayer that I think we need to draw on this morning that I encourage you to make your refrain throughout the week. Show me your ways. Truth builds trust. This is Moses' prayer. God, show me your ways. Show me truth that I might know how to live. In other words, stepping out over here, And setting up my own ways is not the best course. I need to know your ways and adhere to them. I need to be humble. Say, God, show me your ways. God has to be our source of hope, our source of life, and our path for this world. Trust is an issue because of self-centeredness. And self-centeredness says, my path is better than yours. Secondly, we need to pray, show me your glory. This is a prayer of humility. Humility builds trust. Show me your glory as an acknowledgement that, God, you are far more weighty, powerful, and supreme than I am. It's also an intimate thing. God, I want to know you. I want to know who you are, your personality. 
Not only do I need to know your ways, but I need to know you intimately. Build that relationship. And I need you to be present with me. This, the Hebrew term for, for glory means this weight, this bearing down on us, this tangible reality. It reflects that the Lord is there. It's a powerful image. In conclusion this morning, there's a poem that has stood out to me that reflects a lot of what we talked about. I want to read it for you this morning. It's on the back of your bulletin or on the screen. A sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. He smiles and my comforts abound. His grace as the dew shall descend and walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to defend. Unseen yet forever at hand, he smiles and my comforts abound. Speaks to the reality of our situation. Now, there's a phrase in Zephaniah um, that's resonated with me for a long time. Like I said, I experienced the great love of God in high school, and this verse was very formational in that. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I don't know if that's a picture of God you get this morning, but it pictures almost a parent taking their child into their lap and singing over them, experiencing the great joy of that relationship. That is the image of God. That no matter what we've done, every time we turn to him, he takes us into his lap and he sings over us. He rejoices over us. He quiets us with his love and his smiles upon us and our comforts abound. Will you consider making Moses' two prayers a constant refrain this week? Show me your ways. Show me your glory. A sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are constantly there to receive us, to love us. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your ways and show us your glory. In your name, amen.